Hi, and welcome to PodRocket, a web development podcast brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. Try it free at logrocket.com. I'm Tejas Kumar, and today we have Eddie Jowd on to talk about how MDX is a game changer for your React projects documentation. Eddie is an open source full stack developer focusing on JavaScript, TypeScript, and DevOps. On social media, X, formerly known as Twitter, Eddie is famous for projects like EddieHub, BioDrop, and is known as an open source GitHub star. So we're going to dive into all of that. We're going to dive into open source. We're going to dive into GitHub stars. We're going to dive into MDX and all of it. Eddie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm super excited to geek out with you today. Yeah, Eddie, we've crossed paths so many times at so many different events, and I'm so happy I get to talk to you one-on-one in front of probably, hopefully, many listeners. And ideally, we give them something valuable to take away and use in their everyday life. Let's just start with open source and GitHub stars and Eddie Hub. Everywhere I look, I see Eddie Jowd, I see GitHub star. How did, how did that happen? So the GitHub stars program started about three or four years ago, and they wanted a, a way to help get a bit more awareness of the people in open source who are talking and doing open source. So they brought out the stars program and you can nominate people. But for the first year, I think they used the GitHub employees to, to nominate people. And uh, I was one of the first 30 to get selected. And then at the end of the year, they said, we've got our GitHub Stars conference online, come and join. And we watched the conference. It was brilliant. We got to geek out with the uh, GitHub engineers and staff and other stars that we've been doing throughout the year. But this time it was a whole day event. And then it gave out awards and I actually won GitHub Star of the Year. So that means out of that 30, I was selected as the one. And then when you think about it, there's 100 million people on GitHub. So I was like, wow, like I was so shocked. I even was suggested to record myself watching the end of the conference. I didn't twig why, but maybe I'll get a prize or something. And when they announced that, I was just super shocked. And still to this day, I'm really surprised because... I'm just doing what I love. I don't feel I do anything special, but I'm glad that I'm able to help a few people along the way. And then in the second year, I won another award. I think I won top teacher. And then the third year, so last year, I won top community award. So it's just great. And it's great to geek out with all the other stars and GitHub engineers and team throughout the year as well. We're in their Slack channel and, and it's just great to chat with them. So that's basically what it is. And they're improving it every year. I find they're kind of adding more features and taking our feedback on board and adding more improvements. But I highly recommend everyone to go look at the stars, check out what they're up to. But also I recommend that they nominate each other and their friends, the, the people who are consistent. It's not about the people who do the most, like one weekend or one month. I think it's important to nominate and collaborate with people who do it consistently. And if that's once a week, once a month, that's fine. As long as they're doing it over the years, I think that's really important. So yeah, that's the GitHub stars. And you know, when about open source, when I got into open source, I don't want to show my age here, but I got into open source before there was Git and before there was GitHub. Like it's going way back. Yeah, it was a very different landscape back then. And that's why I really loved Git and GitHub because they just brought everyone together and they leveled the playing field and made it so much easier for people to collaborate. And that's what I keep talking about when I talk about open source is really it's about collaboration. Um, the coding part is actually a small part of any real world project. So back in the day, again, before Git and GitHub, you had to get access to people's servers, give them your public SSH keys, find out what tools they're using, SVN or CVS, anything for version control, and then what other tool they had used on top. 
So Git and GitHub really changed that. And that was just a game changer. I felt like open source really leveled up at that point. And I joined GitHub and never looked back. And it's just been amazing to collaborate with so many people around the world yeah, every day, practically. That's so amazing to hear. I'm smiling because I, I share your joy in what open source can do for so many people. In fact, a lot of my very true, very respectable friendships come from open source collaborations with people like Kenzie Dodds, Fabian Bernard, Mikhail Potemann, just really brilliant people in the industry. So you were selected as a GitHub star. What is the criteria? Sorry, I, I hope this isn't too much of a tangent. I'm just really interested in this program. Um, no, this is a great discussion. It's not a tangent at all. To answer your question, I'm going to jump straight in there because I'm super excited about it. What is the criteria? The criteria is really that you collaborate with other people. You don't have to be the biggest contributor on GitHub. You don't have to be the biggest coder. You don't have to create the most content on YouTube or Twitter or blogs. You don't. Everyone's very different. They've actually got quite a diverse mix of people. Some people do a lot on GitHub and do a lot of commits and projects and stuff. And then there are other people who don't do that much on GitHub, but they do a lot on YouTube. And there are other people who do more public speaking and organize meetups. There's just a range of people. There is actually no criteria. I think the criteria, if I had to say like the one criteria that it is to add value to the community and to collaborate with people. I mean, if I may say one more thing is like people think tech projects or projects are about pushing those commits. They're not. When we get an idea, be it an open source project or a private project for a client or our employer, we usually raise an issue or we start a discussion on Slack or Discord or GitHub discussions. You chat about it, then you go, okay, we've kind of solidified that idea. You then raise an issue and then it gets assigned and you work on it and then you raise a pull request and then it gets merged. But if you really break that down even further, a discussion wherever it is a collaboration with people, there's no code involved. An issue, no code involved. It's again, just a collaboration with people. I say just, collaborating is quite hard and it's definitely a skill we need to practice. And then also a pull request. For those of you who don't know what a pull request is, it's effectively like an issue, a ticket. So you've got the title, you've got the description, you've got the collaboration, but you have some changes to the project involved and then it gets merged. So it's kind of collaboration with a bit of code and then more collaboration. So really collaboration is the key thing on any real world project. And so the criteria then to be nominated for or becoming, I love that you're like leveling the playing field here and you're not saying, hey, you need to be Kenzie Dots to get nominated for a GitHub star, right? Anybody who collaborates can get the whatever prestigious title this is. I, I don't mean to how to devalue it by saying whatever. I just, I think it's important to make it known that this is something that's available to everybody provided collaboration is the centerpiece. Is that then what led you to achieve a GitHub star? Just like tons and tons of issues and pull requests and discussion on various projects. Then if yes, what project? I know people, for example, who are associated heavily with one project. Or another. For example, if we think of Dan Abramov, it's React. If we think of Ryan Carniato, it's solid. If we think of Mishko Hevri, it's quick. If we think of Attila Fasina, it's solid. You just know these names and projects, right? I think of what's his name? Francesco Chulia, Docker captain, right? Everybody has got their, their thing that they love. I unfortunately don't. I'm just a generalist. I'm curious, what, were you more like me in that it was just a bunch of contributions to a variety of projects? Or do you have this like one project? Now there's BioDrop, but has it always been one project or what's the style there? I think it's been a variety of projects, my own and also other people's. So I like to collaborate on multiple projects over the years. I think BioDrop, which was known before as Linkfree, it's like my 200th project. So I've created so many and collaborated with 
some amazing members on their projects as well. So no, you don't need to have a famous project or anything like that, really. You don't even need to be super active on GitHub. Some GitHub stars don't have that much activity on GitHub. They collaborate in other places like Discord and Slack and so forth. Wow. I think there just needs to be a public visibility of showing you kind of the open source community. And that's it. It doesn't have to be directly tied to a specific project. And I think that's great. I think it's really good, like you said, that they've leveled the playing field and everyone can get involved. There are GitHub stars, I think, uh, some of them don't even code. They do more on the documentation side or automated testing side. Not I think, I know that for sure. And I think that's great because coming to my talk, I don't want to jump too far ahead, uh, React Day Berlin, but coding and testing and documentation is all just as important as each other. I think at the beginning of tech projects and open source, coding was kind of up there and everything else was when we got time. But now things have definitely changed. It's test-driven development, documentation-driven development. To be honest, it should be like collaboration-driven development. And that's where we should start. So yeah, it's great. There's a variety of people. So whatever area or area of tech people are in, if they're in documentation or in testing or in UI, UX, they can look up to a GitHub star and see what they did to get there. But to be honest, they can even carve their own journey, which I think is even more exciting. I take from what you just said, what I heard was a GitHub star in some way is almost like a role model, an example for those coming into open source. It's a recognition of this person's really good at collaboration. And if you want to get into open source and thrive, then this is the example to follow. Is that accurate? I think so. Although, you know, thinking of myself, I'm thinking I'm not too much of a role model. There are so many amazing GitHub stars and I don't know how I got up in that list. So I really appreciate for, for everyone who supported me through that and everyone who still supports me to this day in the open source community. People say, oh, wow, your BioDrop project got great documentation. It's got five and a half thousand stars. To be honest, it's the community that does all the great work. I couldn't have done it without them. Like with my YouTube videos and my live streams and my public speaking or my open source projects, whatever it is, I feel that I'm starting the conversation conversation, kind of getting that momentum going, and then everyone else gets involved and really makes it better. So that's what I think with everything we do in a real-world project. So when I say real-world project, I mean an open-source project or a private project. And I think there is a lot, a lot of overlap. Yeah. One, they're about collaboration, and two, are project changes, and I say project changes, not code, because it could be documentation, tests, et cetera, all need to add value, and they're always going to get improved. Because yeah. even if we do something today that's amazing, then we're going to learn something new next week or next month and by asked or by someone else and it's going to get improved further. So I think we're all there just to add value and just move the project and the community along a little bit. And then the next day, someone else will do the same. And as you build all this up, the project and the community just all benefits together. Amazing. I want to get into your talk at the conference and at React Day Berlin. I was there. I think you covered some really profound points that I'd like to discuss. But before that, I want to have, add one more question in the context of open source that I think is super interesting for listeners. This is somewhat playing devil's advocate. I had a very traumatic entry into tech. A lot of people gave me a pretty hard time for doing work with CSS. So I was a front-end engineer and I was working mostly on like design and styling, like what Jay is doing, Jay Tompkins over at Vercel. And I used to want to do like GraphQL and people were like, oh, just keep moving your pixels, pixel pusher, you CSS guy. And when I was getting into tech, there was a lot of gatekeeping around, hey, styling contributions are cool, but they're not engineering. They're not problem solving. And I've heard similar discourse in open source around documentation. Or if you're opening a pull request and fixing a bunch of typos, then that's not actually useful. I obviously know that that's super useful, but I've heard people say, this isn't a quote, significant open source contribution. 
My personal opinion on that is I don't agree because, I mean, if you read docs with a typo in it, you hope it's not there. It's unpleasant to read. However, you do understand the sentiment. It's not blocking you from using the thing. That depends. If English is your first language or you're really good at English, you're right, it isn't blocking you. But if English isn't your first language, you're not very good at it, people do sometimes think, does this mean something else? Yeah. And then they go spend time researching it. So I really believe fixing a typo adds so much value. People really overthink their contributions. And I actually think significant, I'm doing air quotes here, significant contributions are actually the least valuable because one, they're really hard to review. And no one wants to review a massive pull request. And most of the time, massive pull requests either get closed, get merged without proper checks, have less comments, and then the smaller the pull request, the more impactful the actual changes because they can get added to the project and the user quicker. Like, let me give a quick example, if I may. When we created, actually it was BioDrop. So when we created BioDrop, it was link-free at the time. And we didn't have a contributing guide. It was really early days. And someone said, Eddie, please assign this issue to me. I'm going to come back in one or two months. I'm going to write an amazing contributing guide. And it's going to be pages long. It's going to be brilliant. And I said, you don't need to do that. You could do something today that will add value to the project and to the users immediately and won't be a real difficult pain to review for the maintainers. They went, what do you mean? I said, we haven't got a contributing file. So why don't you create a contributing file and put one sentence? And the one sentence could be, if you have any questions, come and chat to us in the Eddie Hub Discord with a link to the Discord. That already adds so much value and we can get that deployed in the next kind of 15 minutes. So it's adding value. So that's much more impactful than spending one to two months, which we're talking about open source doing on the side here, which probably means three to four months of, of time. And therefore all that time it's not giving value to the project and the community. And then once you've got that file, that person can do another sentence or now the collaboration comes into play and someone else can add another sentence and prove it. So our contributing guide went from one line to two lines to five lines to a page to two pages down to one page. Cause right, it's not always about adding. Sometimes you want to take things away. You want to keep things concise. And so we've got a really good contributing guide, but it's had about over a thousand contributions to that one page file. And we just keep improving it little by little and often. And I think that's really important. We're all friends here. I'm going to tell a little secret. My first contribution was fixing a typo. And let's be really honest here. My 10th contribution was also fixing a typo. That's how we all get started. And I really believe that adds value. And I think no contribution is too small. Like I said, just to reiterate, I think the smaller the contribution, the better. We can review it quickly. We can get it merged quickly and add value to the project. Incredible. I think that's something that a lot of people who want to get into tech and who are overthinking their contributions right now need to hear. There's so many questions I want to ask you and so many things, but I feel like we should probably talk about your React Day Berlin talk because that's why we're here. Um, but maybe if there's time at the end, we'll see. Let's pivot. Let's talk about the React Day Berlin talk. You talked about MDX being a game changer for the documentation of a React project. This was the talk. Um, I think it's brilliant because MDX brings React into Markdown fundamentally for those who aren't initiated. And you start off by asking the question, who likes bad docs, right? This rhetorical sort of question. And I'm, I hope the answer is nobody. Can you maybe say a couple sentences of why documentation is so important? And you also say in your talk, docs triple equals code. Docs are code. Maybe you could elaborate on that with a couple sentences. Docs are code in that, yes, they're Markdown and Markdown. MDX especially is code, but maybe there's more to it that I wonder if you wanted to capture. Yeah, I'd love to uh, elaborate more on that. So to answer your first part of your question, no one wants bad documentation. No one's ever said, 
I want bad documentation, right? We all want good documentation, but to get good documentation, we need to create it first. And to create it first, we all need to contribute to it because the author of the feature or the project is actually the worst person to write the documentation because there's just so many assumptions that they will make. So they're a good person to maybe start the documentation, have a starting point, but really someone else who's not familiar with the feature or the project needs to go through it and ask questions and tease out all the, the gaps that might have been missed. And I did say docs triple equals code because to me, they're the same thing. And if we ignore, like you said, that MDX is markdown and code, if, even if we ignore that, we do it at a kind of a more abstract level. I believe every pull request should have the project changes, the code changes, but also the documentation changes and the test changes. When someone says, I'll write the documentation later, I'll write the test later, later never happens because you've got the users or the project manager chasing you for that next feature. And so it all just piles up and it gets kind of forgotten about because we're all short on time, whatever it is, work, family, etc. And so I would rather have five features that are written well, been reviewed well, has got good documentation for the users to use. And the users could be an end user, it could be a developer consuming the project. Like it's just that experience, be it a developer experience, user experience and automate a test. Like I want to know that feature is bulletproof. We test the happy path and we test the boundary conditions as well. So we get that regression test as we add more features as well. So I'd rather have five bulletproof features that are complete than 10 that are half-baked and they're going to present loads of bugs later. No one knows that the features exist. No one knows how to use them. So yeah, when you put it like that, I think people realize that they'd rather have less features, but better. I mean, if, if we take a real world example, a car, would you rather have electric windows, heated seats and air conditioning that might sometimes work? Or would you rather just have one of those that always works every time? If you throw brakes into the mix and seatbelt, then now we're getting really serious. I mean, a lot of the time our projects aren't so kind of life-threatening, I suppose, if that's the right word or not. But it is important because it's a lot harder to fix things later on. And so I think we should do them from day one. And treating documentation like code, like tests, I think just makes the project so much better and makes us feel more fulfilled as someone in tech, whatever role we're doing. I'm not saying developers will write all the docs and it replace technical writers or anything like that, or replace testers. I just think if we're the author of the code, we're the first person to start writing the test, start writing the documentation, and then the other disciplines can come in and improve those areas further. Interesting. I'm about to ask a very silly question. Um, there are no silly questions. There are silly answers from me, but there are no silly questions. <laughs> I appreciate that. You mentioned the thing about the car, the steering wheel, heated seats, the brakes, and it's better for all of them to work all of the time as opposed to something working some of the time. Was that example in the context of tests? Because in the context of docs, I imagine the equivalent analogy would be, it's cool to have heated seats, but nobody's going to know you have heated seats unless it's documented, right? Exactly. Yes, you're right. I did it more in terms of tests. You're right. But in terms of documentation, if you don't know it's there or you don't know that feature exists, then you might as well not have it. If you've got air conditioning, but you don't know how to use it, then there's no point having it. Right. Yeah. Would you then say as part of the definition of done for any product roadmap item, like a feature or something, documentation is mandatory. Before you can call something done, documentation has to be part of the discussion. 
100%. In an ideal world, yes, I, I would say that. And especially for a product that people are paying for, yeah. then I would say yes. For people's side projects, they want to move really fast. They want to iterate really fast. They might stop in a month. It's, it's a bit different. We've got to take everything with a pinch of salt. But in terms of if I was doing a client project and I've you know, worked at a variety of different clients, to give some examples, I've done the startup world. I've done government departments in the UK, high street banks. Any companies you can name there or is it all NDA bound? I mean, it's so many years ago, I, I'm sure I can name them. I can done Ministry of Justice, HMRC, some other ones that I probably can't mention. I mean, there's like a company called Delarue. They print passports and money for most of the world. We did a lot of that stuff. And I've done the open source companies like Datastax and you know, other companies as well. And I think for those, I would say yes. Um, if someone's starting a, a side project or an open source project, then you can be a bit more flexible. I would at least have a kind of basic documentation like bullet points and basic tests just to make sure things work. Maybe the happy path, you might not do all the boundary conditions. So yes, again, it's just find that balance to what makes sense for that project. We all know, and now, now that you've established it so firmly, and I think you know your voice here carries some weight with being a GitHub star and being quite active with GitHub and things like that. So now that we've established that that is extremely important as part of the definition of done, I'm wondering if we could talk about some ways that teams can make sure that's part of the discussion when calling something. And I say that because you alluded to this earlier where we'll ship a feature, but then we'll say, oh, the docs come later, but then they never come. I have to believe part of that is because, as you mentioned, we're, we're often hustling to get this feature out and we need to ship. We need to ship. There's a lot of memes around, oh, I see things are like this, but I needed to ship. And I'm wondering if we could maybe isolate and maybe if you've seen in the real world, some instances where teams have solved this and how they've solved it. And what I'm trying to do really is isolate and identify some takeaways that people listening to this can go, oh, maybe we can enforce doc completion this way or that way. Some protocols to make sure docs are always part of that discussion. Have you come across something like this? Absolutely. There's one project I can think of. It's actually for a German bank. And it was really interesting. The team was really diverse and everyone wanted the project to succeed. But to be honest, everyone wants their project to succeed. But we all had a different passion part of the project, if that makes sense. So let me explain. When you watch the kind of the movies and they have um, like a squad in the army, they go and you know, do some Rambo stuff or whatever. Rambo is more one person, but something like that. They have one person who focuses on the team's morale, one person who focuses on the team's health, one person who focuses, they're all the same sort of role, but they have a speciality of maybe their passion. And in this team that I was talking about, we got rid of titles. We just felt having a tester, developer, documenter, it just kind of, some people thought it was a hierarchy. Some people just, it just didn't work. So we were all just team members. And yes, we were all experts in a specific area, but we were all passionate about something. And yes, there was a lot of overlap. And so at the beginning of a project, usually the testers are a bit more lighter weight. And then towards the end of the project, historically, things are thrown over the fence and they've got a lot more to do at the end. We wanted to remove that. We wanted to make us all responsible from the beginning of the project. So the people who maybe got more work towards the end of the sprint, they would help others. So they would help start writing documentation, help writing tests that would fail. They might be tweaked later on when you, you know, if you're doing end-to-end -end testing, for example, or you're doing documentation, there's going to be new screenshots, there's going to be functionality might change slightly. But you could kind of put the skeleton in place. and. They all contributed to that pull request. And then the other thing that we did was everyone else reviewed the pull request. It wasn't just the most senior developer that reviewed it. Everyone. Wow. 
from junior to senior. And the reason for that is a senior looks for something very different. They look for more kind of architectural, maybe security, whereas they don't always look at it from the user's perspective sometimes. Or we had someone in the team, for example, who was really passionate about accessibility. So they would look about the accessibility part. And there was a lot of collaboration between the entire team on this pull request. And so when it did get merged into the project and sent out to the users, Everyone was part of it. Everyone was responsible for it. There was no kind of, there's a bug, it's your fault. It's, there's a bug, it's all our fault. How can we avoid this? What can we automate so we don't have this issue again in the future? And we all took responsibility. I'm not saying we were the dream team and finished all features on time. Yes, there are things that didn't make it, but we were happy with what made it was we were all proud of and was of a high quality and the users had documentation that was there and was up to date, right? Because out of date documentation is even worse than no documentation. So for anyone listening, if you've got out of date documentation, delete it. That's better than out of date documentation because you'll send someone down the wrong path and it's really confusing. So I'm doing what you're saying, but it's not working. Whereas if you delete it, they'll try and figure it out. They'll ask questions. So yeah, that's, I think, really important. And we were really proud to have our documentation always up to date and everything else as well. So yeah, we were very proud of that project. I thought it was at a high quality. So the takeaway here is have everybody be as involved in the process as possible. So that just by law of probabilities, somebody's going to think about docs, tests, etc. And it's the sort of shared ownership of the code. Absolutely. And that sounds really awesome. And I'm glad it was a success story. But at some point, I have to think about the early startup case where six people, and you're all doing your best. And not everybody has the time or capacity. I mean, a big German bank, I can understand living in Germany, there's often a lot of people. I wonder if there's a version for that that translates to early startup. Or maybe not. Maybe early startups are just places where documentation is often afterthought. And that's just how it is because there's so few hands on deck. I don't think so. I think, I mean, we were a small team. We were actually part of an R&D team. So we were doing some new work and we were treated like a startup, which was great. But it's got the funding, like you said. So if a startup that maybe needs to move a bit faster, maybe hasn't got the budget for certain things, I think they can be tactical in their choices. Like I said, out-of-date documentation is worse. No test is worse, but you can come to a point on the documentation that it's good enough. Yeah. It might not have a video demo. It might not have animated GIFs, but it's got a screenshot and it's got some bullet points and it is up to date. It is correct. What it's saying there is correct. And I think that is definitely achievable and people shouldn't think it. I think people fail before they even start because they think it's not going to be good documentation, so I'm not going to do it. So they fail before they've even tried. So maybe the idea is even in a small team, the protocol is just write docs. Like you mentioned, people would just write like incomplete tests. You just said that in the big bank. So maybe in a small startup, it would be like, look, you're, you're maybe new to the feature or you're just building the feature and you need to move fast, but just literally make an empty MDX file and that's your contribution, right? Like you said with the one sentence thing earlier with the contributing guideline, just do a minimal thing so that it's there. And then people will recognize that this is lacking and will maybe open an issue if it's open source. And then you can iterate, but it's important to have something instead of nothing. As long as that something is then not outdated, because you also mentioned outdated docs are worse than no docs at all. So something bad and something up to date. And that's probably the takeaway for everybody listening. Is that sort of in the ballpark of um, what you're suggesting? 
Absolutely. Small and correct and up-to-date is better than nothing and better than big and large and out-of-date. Right. So uh, absolutely. Like you said, having uh, one NDX file with a title, maybe three bullet points, then that's going to be a great starting point. They were probably already in like, the top 10% of projects straight away already. Absolutely. It's a good takeaway. I'm reminded of a great colleague. His name is Dave New over at a company called Keel. He's just this brilliant backend engineer and will write most of the docs, but sometimes will be like literally like three bullet points. Here's what I want to say. <laughs> and then he'll hand it over to the docs or the DevRel team and he'll be like, fin finish this. This is what I needed to say. And it works. So yeah, I appreciate you calling attention to that. We're almost out of time. Man, like I, I could honestly talk to you for another two hours here, but to bring the discussion back to MDX. So, okay, so MDX changes the game because Markdown is plain text. MDX is like JSX, so JSX, for those who don't know, is JavaScript extended or JavaScript syntax extension, JSX, that extends JavaScript to include some type of HTML style syntax so you can write React components that look like HTML, et cetera. MDX is the same, or it's Markdown, but you can write this like weird HTML style syntax that is React components, and you can make them interactive. What does interactive documentation entail? There's a couple of things I would like to mention here. Like part of the reason I think why documentation gets forgotten about is because people think it's not code, it's not as valuable, but they're not thinking about the end user. Whereas if we can do JSX in there, like you mentioned, then it's almost a bit more exciting. It's a bit code-like. And in terms of the interaction, having up-to-date and good docs is really important. But if you've got a block of code and you have to cut copy each time, but then sometimes in the browser it selects line numbers or something like that, like it's really painful to use. And the developer experience is better because the docs are up-to-date and they're there, but then it's not great because it's really painful to use. You could do with a React component, like around the markdown code block that has the three backticks and the syntax highlighting, like JSX. You could put a component around that that allows you to just have a copy button in the top right-hand corner and you can just click copy. And wrapping that in a component, later on, if you want to improve it, change it, you change it in one place, and then it, it replicates through all documentation. Another example would be like, I don't know, an alert box, caution, be aware, or, or whatever it is. We might have those, well, we probably do have those in the project as well. Like, I don't know, your form wasn't saved, like alert. We could use those alerts in the documentation as well. And it allows us to have this synergy between the, the project, the platform, as well as the documentation. So it's more familiar to us as people on the project, but it's also more familiar to the users as well. So again, it's just win all round. I mean, don't get me wrong. Markdown is amazing, but it's limited. It only has like eight or nine functionality and you can style it a bit. But with MDX, we can have the power of the JSX or the, or the you know, that we're used to. And so it just levels that up and it just gives us a bit more control and dare I say fun back into it as well. Nice. Yeah, for sure. So I feel like Markdown is the de facto standard for documentation. Documentation as like code, technical documentation, put it that way. MDX can be thought of as a superset of Markdown, uh, right? It's similar to JavaScript being the de facto language of the web and TypeScript being a superset of that. And there's a learning curve. Some would see a significant learning curve going from JavaScript to TypeScript. Could you speak to the learning curve um, from Markdown to MDX, if any? Does one need to know React or just some JSX? And what's the difference? That's uh, a really good question. From JavaScript to TypeScript is a bigger jump. I love TypeScript. It reminds me of my Java days back in the day. I really love all the generics and all that great stuff. So it is a much bigger jump. But to get into MDX, it is 
a smaller jump because if we're already coding in JavaScript, then it's it's not much of a, a jump like that one step further. And I think there's so many great resources out there to learn about it, to integrate it into our favorite library or framework like React or Next.js or Astro, whatever it is. There's some great libraries out there to do it with some great documentation, funny enough. Um, and we all want good documentation and, and it is out there. Um, I think people should actually read the docs a bit more as well. I think people probably prioritize Googling chat GPT and asking the community first before looking at the docs. And I think when that changes, and I'm starting to see that change a bit more as docs get better, people will use it more or chat GPT takes it all from docs anyway. As that improves, I think people will use the docs more, which then will put more emphasis on us. And I say us, the royal us, the whole community to improve those documentation. So it's kind of like um, a cycle that will keep improving itself. People shouldn't be scared of MDX. They should give it a try. There are so many open source projects out there. People are writing their blogs with it as well. So they should definitely give it a try. And if they have any questions, they should just ask in the community and there'll be someone be able to help. I love that you mentioned ask in the community. There's a trend nowadays of having these sort of conversational AIs in documentation, right? Where it's ask the docs a question and you get a response. How do you see that evolving, do you think? There's going to be at some point just no documentation and instead just a big chatbot. Ask me anything about the docs and I'll teach you. Would that work better than having the docs available? I, I have to imagine it might be because it's more personal. It's literally like I go to the docs for, let's say, Astro. And instead of reading some stuff that somebody wrote prescriptively, paternalistically for me, I'm just like learning at my own pace. Hey, how do I set up a project? And then it says, okay, you want to NPM install this? Okay, now what do I? And so it's more individual attention. What do you think of that? Are docs going to stay the same or is there room for, or is there even potential for like conversational AI to supersede docs? I don't think it will supersede it. I think it might run in parallel because for example, for me, I want the docs to take me through the kind of the flow that I need to learn the project. Yes, later on when there are more advanced stuff that I might have a specific question, like I'm trying to do this, how do I do it? I might jump to the chat, but the chat bot is going to get it from our docs. Also, the chatbots, a lot of the time, confuse versions. So I see a lot of people saying, well, you know, ChatGPT said this. It's like, well, the first part is version three and the second part is version four and then it jumps to version two. And I think it hasn't got that context of versioning just yet. I'm sure it'll get better and improve, but I don't see it replacing it because the documentation is almost like a course. And I think that is needed for people. And there are people who do want to have that conversation. So I always think there'll be two sides to it. Like some people like to read, some people like to watch a video. We're never going to replace YouTube with blogs. We're never going to replace blogs with YouTube. Yes, they'll complement each other. Yes, people will probably not duplicate the content, but repurpose the content to another platform. And I think that would be the same with a chatbot. It will repurpose the documentation. And then the documentation could be improved by seeing what questions people ask in the chatbot as well, which is something that we need that feedback. If everyone keeps asking this question and the chatbot keeps saying, no, can't find it, then we need to add that to the documentation. So yeah, I think it's a good feedback loop. I love that. Full disclosure, I run a small business and oftentimes I encounter like competitors to what I'm doing. And some of them, before we can even have a discussion, just like will block me. <laughs> this happens a lot. But when I get the chance to talk to competitors, I tell them, I'm like, listen, we don't compete. Actually, what we do is we complete. We don't compete. We complete the ecosystem. And I love that you mentioned this videos will never replace blogs and vice versa, because really all they do is complete instead of competing in the entire ecosystem of education. All right. We're about to wrap up, but I do want to ask one final question, which is what 
tips would you like to share with developers who are incorporating MDX into their docs for the first time? Especially coming from Markdown and MDX may be a little bit more complicated. If you could actually, let's do even better. Let's put some more constraints on you. What is the one tip that you would recommend to developers incorporating MDX into their docs for the first time? I would say don't get too involved in customizing it on day one. I see people get excited. They've set it up. It's really straightforward. You can set it up in about 30 seconds on a Next or React project. But then they spend all their time customizing this one page and they've got one page. Whereas I think it's better to do a light touch across more pages and then you or somebody else can customize it further later. And because of components, you can customize it in one place and it will replicate across the entire kind of documentation. So I would say, don't try and go too deep too soon because you're gonna learn so much along the way, you might change things and do things differently later. Awesome. Hey, it's been such an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. I'm so glad once again, like we've been bumping into each other at conferences. It's nice to actually have a maybe too short, but still very valuable chat. Eddie, on behalf of the entire podcast and myself, thank you so much for making the time to chat with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was awesome to geek out with you. After this call, let's plan part two and let's geek out some more. It was a great chat. Like you said, we could have gone for a couple more hours, but I really appreciate it. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.